Brothers and sisters, let's now take our Bibles and read a portion of Scripture together in that in connection with Lord's Day 6. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, we pick up the reading at verse 12, and I'd like to read through to chapter 2, verse 3. Second Peter 1 at verse 12, for this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by way of reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, and just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I'll be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God, the God the Father, honor and glory, when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they'll exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, their destruction does not slumber." And so far, brothers and sisters, the reading from God's Word, the church, and that is you and I included, are called by the Lord to respond to what He tells us. And part of that response is our confession, where we say the same thing as God's revealed to us using our own words in Lord's Day 6. We repeat after God what God has said in passages as Second Peter chapter 1. So let's turn now to Lord's Day 6. <clears throat> and here we repeat after God what he's told us in his word. Why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sin should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. 
Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath, might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But who is that mediator? Who at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man? Well, our Lord Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. From where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise, later had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifice of the ceremonies of the law, and finally had it fulfilled through his only Son. So here we are, brothers and sisters, sitting in church, each, I'm assuming, with our Bible. That Bible, we just sang it, Psalm 119, is a light on our path, and so we make it our business to do life in the light of God's Word. That includes how we're doing our business. It includes what happens at the kitchen table. We talk with our children. We teach them the Word of God. It includes that we see Christian education as important, catechism classes invaluable. The children need to be taught the way of God. It includes that we don't work today and we come to church. We sit here under the Word of God. Why? Why direct your life have so many decisions determined by this book. Why? So we've got Lord's Day 6 in front of us. A confession about a mediator needs to be true God and true man, and it ends up in question and answer 18, who is that mediator? That is Jesus Christ. Point being, Lord's Day 2, 3, 4, we're fallen creatures who broke the wrath of God. The only way out, the only solution that lies broken is, is Jesus Christ, which is why we teach it to our children. The elephant in the room. How do you know it's true? How do you know it's true? You see, that's question 19. From where do you know this? And the answer, from the Holy Gospel. 
which God himself first revealed, etc. We're today's people. And we need to have a clear answer. Why embrace the Bible? I summarized the sermon with this theme. Events recorded in the Bible are incontestably factual. Events recorded in the Bible are incontestably factual. In developing that theme, I ask your attention for three points. The first is, how do we know the accuracy of the Bible? The second is, why are we told of its accuracy? And third, so what? Our first question this morning then, how do you know the accuracy of the Bible? Then as we unpack that first point, let me say right away that accepting the Bible as the actual Word of God and so embracing its content is a matter of faith. Is something the Holy Spirit needs to work in our hearts. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of the working of the Holy Spirit simply because our hearts are so depraved that we're not wanting to accept its glorious news. Because the news of the Bible is too damning. And at the same time, it's too glorious for us sinners to embrace. Damnly because it's of our depravity, Lord's Day 2, Lord's Day 3, Lord's Day 4, the wrath of God on our sin. But it's too glorious at the same time because God offers free forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Wow, that's too, too wonderful. So, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. But... The fact that it is the Holy Spirit who works faith in our hearts does not, my brothers and sisters, take away from the fact that embracing the Bible is actually very logical and very common sense. On the same grounds as operates in Canada's courts of law, eyewitness testimony is central to what happens in courts of law. Eyewitness testimony is central in your grappling with the question, why should I embrace what the Bible says? And that's what Peter works out in the passage of Scripture we read together. So if you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, let's follow what Peter says on this point. Chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, 
bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtained like precious faith with us. He's writing to particular readers, and theologians, scholars assume, for various reasons, it's the same audience as his first letter. So the people of Asia Minor, the western part of today's Turkey, He's writing a letter to people who have never met Jesus Christ because he lived miles and miles and miles away from Jerusalem. He's also writing it about one generation after Jesus ascended into heaven. Peter's writing this to these people, but they know Peter and Peter knows them broadly speaking, because they've heard his preaching and the preaching of other apostles. The content of the preaching, of course, is Christ Jesus crucified in Jerusalem under Pontius Pilate. The wrath of God poured out of him upon him so that Jesus pays for sin, dies buried. Third day, arose from the dead. After a period of time, ascended into heaven. Glorious gospel. Really, the same material that we've been confessing in the earlier Lord's days of the Catechism already. We're a broken people. There's redemption in Jesus Christ. Then the apostle tells his readers the implications of all of this. Verse 3, His divine power has given to us, that's particular people in Asia Minor living at a certain time in a very broken world, has given to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness to the knowledge of Him who called us. He's saying, dear brothers, dear sisters, everything you need to do life well. You have in Jesus Christ. His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's comprehensive. You're lacking nothing. Everything you need from cradle to grave. That's rich. No doubt about it. And even go a step farther and say in verse 4, you're partakers of the divine nature. You've escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust exactly because of Christ's redeeming work. You belong to Him. You're taken up into the family of God. And as a result, verse 11, there's an entrance for you into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sins, life eternal, yours. It's the stuff that we've been confessing. Your Redeemer is Jesus Christ. But now the Apostle adds, verse 12, I want to remind you always of these things. You mustn't forget. I'm going to keep telling you. 
but he knows he's soon going to die. Verse 13, verse 14, I'm in this tent now, but soon I must put off, shortly must put off this tent. Verse 14, as our Lord showed me, so 15, I'll be careful to ensure you'll always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Well, what's the reminder? He's written things down. It's a permanent record. Why should they have a continual reminder? Why should they have a Bible? Because, he says, verse 16, for, here's your reason, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables when he made known to the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You need to know, he tells his readers, you need to know the facts. The facts that happened that result in you having redemption. So I'm going to make sure you keep on having these facts. We were eyewitnesses. We can testify to what really happened. Now, we all do appreciate, I'm sure, the value of eyewitness testimony. I mentioned a moment ago the courts of law in Canada, and if you've ever been in a court uh, case, um, you know that witnesses get called up. They're not asked to give their opinion on anything, but to relate what did you see? What did you hear? This even cross-examination takes place to make it really, really clear to judge or jury exactly what did you see. And it's on the basis of what did you see, and other witnesses, what did they see, or here, as the case might be, the jury or judge makes a determination on who's guilty and who's not. Witnesses, central to the, well, to, to, to the discovery of truth in the courts of the land. And then Peter says, that's us. We, verse 16, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. The word we is a reference there to Peter, to James, to John, to the other disciples, and to many, many more who had been there and seen Jesus casting out demons who had eaten of the five loaves and two fish that Jesus multiplied, there was 5,000 people who ate. Witnesses of his ability to multiply that bread. There were so many witnesses to so many miracles Jesus did in the course of those three years. 
And the fact of the matter is that Peter's readers, like I said, are living in Asia Minor, hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, from Israel. But if there's hundreds and thousands of witnesses, right? There's 5,000 who ate of the broken bread. If there's hundreds, if there's thousands of witnesses, count on it, my brothers, my sisters, the people travel. And people talk. My point is that if Peter says, we were eyewitnesses, he's leaving himself wide open to cross-examination. And not just himself, but anybody else who saw what happened. So here's your challenge that Peter is setting before his readers of so many years ago. We were eyewitnesses. You go right ahead and find other eyewitnesses and cross-examine them. What did you see? What did Jesus do? And go find other witnesses. Does it confirm the testimony of the first witness? I'm going to make a point of belaboring this. Because you're aware, I trust, that there's Bible teachers around who will say, um, did 5,000 people eat of that bread that Jesus multiplied? No, 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 that's just embellished. That just, that's, that's a fable that sort of grew over time. Did Jesus um, walk on water? No, 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 no. That's a fable that sort of grew over time. Did Jesus cast out demons? Did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? No, 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 no. That, that, that doesn't happen. These are fables that grew. So I need to belabor this for a moment. It's 20 years ago that the Twin Towers came down in New York. Yeah? If you were told today that in point of fact what happened 20 years ago was that a Cessna was flying around the city and the pilot had a, what a who knows, heart attack or something like that, and he flew into this building and the building caught fire and the New York Fire Department was able to distinguish the fire. But, right, those are the facts this, this, this person tells you. But conspiracy theories or whatever the case might be, this, this, the, these, these facts were, were, well, they morphed into this big story of a jetliner hitting not one tower but two towers and the whole thing came down, the next one came down. Would you buy the accounts of the person who says, nah, it was just a Cessna, it was just one tower, Damage wasn't all that extensive, but it just morphed into something really big. Would you buy it? And I can guarantee you that none of you would buy it. And why wouldn't you buy it? Simply because there's that many eyewitnesses to what in fact happened 20 years ago. And media being what it is, so many of you have seen it with your own eyes. Why would you think 
then that 2,000 years ago it's any different. Does it make logical sense to say that now Jesus did not multiply loaves that way and 5,000 people ate, and now Jesus did not raise Lazarus, and now Jesus did not cast out demons, etc., etc., etc. All these miracles, all these facts of Scripture, that's all just embellishment after the fact because of some sort of who knows what conspiracy theory or a love for the Master or whatever the case might be. It's just not factual. My brothers, my sisters, if somebody came along today and said, no, it was a Cessna 20 years ago, you would write it off as bogus. And the fact that somebody said it was a Cessna would simply fall off the pages of history as just an irrelevant, it's just not true, we all know that. So if there were those who criticized the Bible back 2,000 years ago and said, no, no, it's all embellishment. It would have just fallen off the pages of history as whatever, somebody's just talking. We wouldn't even know about it. But the fact that we've got four Gospels that testify to Jesus' mighty works. And the fact that these four Gospels were embraced by countless people after the fact. And the church grew. And many believed. Simply gives evidence to the fact that in those days, there were so many witnesses, it was impossible to write Jesus' work off as bogus. It does not make logical sense to say that this book, with its historical facts, are all embellishments. Why do you believe the Bible? Because there's so many eyewitnesses to what happened. The Lord's preserved the testimony of witness upon witness upon witness upon witness in this Bible. And there's thousands of witnesses beyond what's written in this book. And the early church knew the facts were real. What I'm getting at, please, brothers, sisters, older and younger, do not think it is unscientific. Do not think it is illogical. Do not think it is unreasonable to embrace Scripture. Go ahead.
do your historical research. Go ahead. Be a judge and call up witness upon witness upon witness. And the only logical answer you'll come to is the facts recorded in the Bible, the events recorded in the Bible, incontestably factual. So why doesn't everybody believe it? Because it's too damning. It runs counter to what my depraved heart wants to believe. I've never seen miracles like this. So it can't have happened. But there's so much evidence it did. And the interpretation of the evidence is he who did the miracles is true man and true God, Lord's Day 6. He who did the miracles atoned for sin. He's my Savior, Lord's Day 6. So there's the first question. How do we know the accuracy of the Bible? Let's go on to the second. Why are we told? And then Peter goes a step farther and he wants his readers, chapter 115, always to have a reminder of these things. Always to have a reminder. And then he goes into further detail in chapter 2, verse 1. He says they were also false prophets among the people of the past, even as there will be false prophets among you. And that's a reality in Peter's day, 2,000 years ago, and it's a reality in today's North America too. You're always to have be able to recollect these facts, says Peter, because at any time there's false teachers. All right. What do these false teachers teach? Again, chapter 2, 1. The bringing in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. Denying the Lord who bought them means denying Jesus is Lord, okay, but all that Jesus did, denying all the facts recorded in Scripture and the significance of what Jesus did of these facts. Denying them, bringing on themselves swift destruction. The thing is, of course, what Jesus did had a reason. He healed the sick, he cast out demons, he multiplied bread, etc. The bitter effects of the fall into sin is that we're exiled from the presence of God, right? Out of the garden into a world of brokenness. Jesus' miracles 
demonstrated he was building the kingdom of God, setting straight the damage or fall into sin, restoring paradise. So, giving life meaning, purpose, direction. But these false prophets, what do they do? They celebrate sensuality. They have their destructive ways, verse 2. And the word that's translated there as destructive ways, sensuality, catches the notion of finding your happiness, finding your purpose in your feelings. And then especially sexual freedom. It's very much today, right? Celebration of your feelings. And in order to get away with it, Peter says, what do they do? They deny the Lord who bought them. They blaspheme the way of truth. They ridicule Scripture and they say the facts of Scripture, that's all embellishment. It just never happened the way the Bible says it happened. And the question arises, how would Peter want his readers to respond to that kind of destructive heresies, that kind of false teachers. Does he want his readers to be swept along? And of course the answer is no. Work with the facts. And so Peter tells his readers, what are they to do? Well, check what happens to these teachers. Those destructive ways they end up imploding. And if you want contemporary examples of, of, of uh, such teachers imploding, Jeffrey Epstein, sudden destruction. His whole lifestyle based on feelings, sensuality, Celebration of sex just collapsed. Hollywood. Celebration of sensuality. Sexual freedom. Are the people of Hollywood happy? Are they? Across North America, this whole trend in relation to gender dysphoria, again, this celebration of, of sex, of your feelings, that's what determines reality. Does it make North Americans happy? And I think we all are aware that North Americans are amongst the unhappiest people in the world today. Despite all the abundance we have, why? Because you're barking up the wrong tree. False teachers 
produces certain teachings that, 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 that are empty. They don't satisfy. Swift destruction, as the apostle writes. What's driven these teachers? Verse 3 says our translation, by covetousness. Other translations, by greed. They'll exploit you. They want you to come along with their way of thinking. It's all covetousness. It's all greed. Looking for affirmation of their own insecurities. And the apostle says, don't go there. Don't follow that. They're bringing swift destruction upon themselves. But following his argument, do your homework check eyewitness testimony. Did Jesus really give purpose to life? Did he really roll back the negative consequences of the fall into sin or exile from paradise? Did he raise the dead? Did he cast out demons? Did he, did he, did he? And the facts were all there. Then why would you follow the false teachers of today? That's Peter's question to his readers long ago and to you as well. Why are you told what happened 2,000 years ago? The facts, as countless eyewitnesses saw them, why are you told? And the answer to that question, my brothers, my sisters, is because the Lord cares for you. He does not want you unhappy. He does not want you stuck in life's brokenness and senselessness. So he's telling you the way of redemption. He's telling you what he, in God the Son, true man, did on this planet 2,000 years ago. All of that a foretaste of what he's preparing for you in the new Jerusalem. That's his love for you. That's his kindness. That's his care for you. You shouldn't be walking in the dark. You shouldn't be resting your happiness on your feelings. Isn't that wonderful? That he gives you a word because he loves you. And tells you facts of what he did 2,000 years ago. Third point, so what? How do we work with this? Brothers, sisters, whether you're old or whether you're young, we live in today's North America. Surrounded by today's false teachers in a confused world 
that makes an awful lot of noise that comes to our ears via social media, etc. In that context, you've come to church and you seat yourself in front of a pulpit and you hear the Word of God. What you are doing this morning, sitting here, is, my brothers, my sisters, a waste of time. A senseless mental game if, if, in fact, the Bible is wrong. If what's recorded in here never happens, then brothers, sisters, go home, toss your Bibles away, and give yourself to your feelings. Because there's no other hope. Karl Marx called religion the opium of the masses. He's right. If, if the facts recorded in Scripture never happened. If they never happened. Your being here and your reading the Bible at home and your guiding your life by the Word of God is nothing else than a soother, a dummy to make you feel good. And one day, one day you will spit it out. Or you see your kids spitting out the dummy. That is why this Lord's Day is so vitally important. How do you know this? From the Word of God. And it's loaded with eyewitness reports which makes it very obvious, logical. These things happened. Which means... My brothers, my sisters, busy yourself with the facts. Busy yourself with the Bible. Psalm 119, we sang it. Your word is a light on my path. In the darkness and the confusion of 2022, God gives a light, tells you of things that happened 2,000 years ago, and why they happened. God has stepped into this world in Jesus Christ to deliver us from sin, restore us to paradise. Now I have purpose. Now I have hope in this life. So, your word is a light. I shall be busy with that word. It makes me wiser than my vows. It makes me wiser than any teacher. Of today's North American universities, or what's on social media,
And so there's my question for you, my brothers, my sisters. Are you, in fact, busy with the Bible? Is this book of incalculable value to you? And I don't mean that as an academic question. Do your children actually see that this book is of infinite value to you? Do they see you busy with the Word in the midst of life's questions? And again, I mean by that more than do you spend time reading the Bible? Because that's not that difficult to do. That's a bit of self-discipline, especially if you're interested in reading. But grappling with its message in the context of what you read in the paper and see on TV. Do your kids see you busy with that? What's the flavor of men's society, of women's society, your Bible study clubs? Simply a matter of trying to understand what the meaning of a particular word is. Or is the flavor one of these are the answers to all life's questions. Brothers, this is what I'm grappling with at work. Help me find the right answers. Sister, this is what I'm struggling with at home with my children. Help me find the right answers. Because they're here. And same for young people as you're busy with, young, with, with your Bible studies, right? In catechism class and pre-con. School. Bible, light on my path because it tells me facts, what God has done, why he did it. You live in today's world with so much confusion. And you, you are so rich because God's given you His Word.